Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, herbicide resistance is a growing concern and one of the biggest worries is with wild oats. In fact, the Herbicide Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee found roughly 69% of wild oat across the prairies displayed some form of herbicide resistance. Farmer Josh Lade saw the devastating effects of herbicide resistance in his home country of Australia, and now farming in west-central Saskatchewan, he's been dealing with herbicide-resistant weeds. He'll share his strategies for management, including patch-targeted spraying, herbicide layering, and on-farm trials. The prairies and parts of Ontario are, of course, dealing with extremely dry conditions. There has been a great deal of focus on grains and oil seeds and the livestock sector. Wayne Doby with Nutrien will discuss forage seed stands and provide a strategy for preparing the crop for 2022. After the break, Josh Lade. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Josh Lade has learned a thing or two about herbicide-resistant weeds, first while growing up in Australia, and then after he moved to Saskatchewan and began farming. So, Josh, your experiences have helped you to change how you deal with the development of herbicide-resistant weeds. Maybe tell us about uh, how you first discovered it uh, in your farming operation here and, and how you proceeded with it. Yeah, first time I really saw it on our farm here just north of Saskatoon in Osla was uh, back in the growing season of 2013. We seeded, it was after a few wet years, like 2010, 11, 12 were very wet for us, you know, we're now 15 to 20 inches of rain, which I could only hope for today, considering we've had two inches so far this year. But um, yeah, we've come through some really wet years struggling to get herbicide applications made in those prior years to 2013, just being so wet. And we had a field of canola that we, it was clear field canola. Um, we seeded it. I remember going back to look at it after we had seeded, it was sort of coming up in that cotyledon two leaf stage, one leaf stage, and noticed just an absolute carpet of cereal grain, I thought, but it was actually wild oats. Like it was just gross from, it was a 300 300-acre field, and it was just from one side to the other. Being that it was uh, clear-field canola, we, I knew we only had basically one shot with Aries to go in, so we thought, well, it's a bit early to go with the Aries considering we knew we were going to have some broadleaf weeds come up later on. So we thought, well, let's just go with um, a shot of Centurion or a Clethidin. Uh, so that's what we did early on, sprayed that and come back 10 days later, and I was, couldn't believe it. I was quadding across on the motorbike and... And uh, just these patches of, you know, yellowing, dying wild oats and then just patches of grass green just flying along that had no no impact. So, yeah, it was a hard lesson there to learn that we had some pretty serious group one resistance on that field. And so that was the first time I'd really seen it here in Canada. Obviously, being a native Australian, I've seen it down there. So, I was, yeah, it's quite an eye-opener uh, to see it in that sort of broad scale and just you know, it wasn't just, you know, the odd little patch. It was, we're probably talking 100 acres or more on that field was just green with group one resistant wild oats. So, yeah, that was that was my first experience in noticing the herbicide resistance here, 2013 it was. 
So with this unique experience growing up in Australia, how did this shape your view of herbicide resistance? Um, just to know that it's real. Remember early days here, I first came over here in 2009 and just talking with a couple of agronomists or farmers and it was, I don't know whether it was head in the sand or what, but it was, uh, it's not a problem here. You've got the frost, you've got winter, kills them all. Um, but yeah, obviously that's not the case, otherwise we wouldn't be spending thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on chemistries trying to control these herbicide resistant weeds that is making their way across the western prairies here. Um, so, yeah, just growing up with it, I remember as a kid, Dad got us out of bed and said, hey, let's go and pull a few wild radish plants out of these lupins uh, because we couldn't really control them and we knew that if they were going to set seed, it was going to be a gong show. So as a 10-year-old kid out in the field trudging around the lupin crop, pulling pulling wild radish and putting it in a bag, that was, uh, yeah, so I knew it was pretty real growing up with it uh, and your ryegrass as well. As everyone knows about in Australia, is a pretty pretty bad resistant weed down there. It's resistant to just about every chemistry they've got at some point. So just knowing that, and just n- knowing what I know here, is that you know we, for the most part, on our farm or a lot of farms across the prairies, we we still have many good modes of action available to to get a shot at these weeds. And so I guess, uh, yeah, just. I just, knowing what I grew up with in Australia, coming here, there wasn't a sit and wait approach as far as I was concerned. It was, let's get on this. Let's get these weed populations low now. Let's not wait until it's, you know, a big problem. You know, it was more, yeah, okay, we're going to have to spend 10, 15, 20 bucks an acre more in some cases. And it didn't seem justifiable because maybe the populations weren't big enough, but, um, it was just a no-brainer for me. It was just we just had to do it because I didn't want to see what I've seen in Australia, and also, I guess, back to that first question on this one field and how bad those wild oats, or wild oats were. Um, and in in retrospect, now we've really got that field under control. Like the full circle on that field now, we're actually back to clear field canola again in 2021, and we. We sprayed a grass spray out there, but it was just to get the volunteer barley from last year. We really pulled that one under control, but that, it's cost us some money, though. You know, we've we're probably spending fifteen to twenty bucks an acre more than than the average guy to get that that population down. It's worked. Maybe you could just share with us what practices uh, you had to adjust to manage that resistance on your farm. Yeah, so just. Talking more so about wild oats because it's probably the one weed that really scares me. Um, we really pushed a full prong residual approach. So in front of our canola, we like to get trifluralin out there. One has great efficacy on the wild oats, plus it also pulls back a few broadleaf weeds as well. So really like the trifluralin in front of our canola acres. And then when it comes to cereals, I guess uh, you can do a bit of Avidex in front of your barley for, for sure, but I like using the peroxisophones of the world um, just because they do have, you know, they've still got suppression of wild oats at 70-odd percent, but it just gives you a good value for money with the fact that there's quite a few broadleaf weeds 
on label there as well. So a lot of peroxys I find in front of our wheat um, and trifluralum in front of the canola. And obviously like to, you know, we patch manage a little bit as far as the Avidex is concerned to sort of put those on fields where, where the populations were bad. But now we're sort of getting to a point where our numbers are pretty low and we're not using too much Avidex, but just to turn back to that 2013 story, that field, for example, got Avidex. I think we did it two years in a row, actually. Um, just to really get that num- those populations down to take the, the pressure off our in-crop chemistries. And it absolutely worked. You know, it worked brilliantly. So, yeah, where, where, where the populations were really bad, we've, on a wild oats, for example, I'd love to put Avidex down. It's just... It's uh, it works fantastic, yeah. So, yeah, more more the residual, making sure that we've got that a residual chemistry out in the fall or prior to seeding. I like the fall; just the snow melt often helps with activation, and the springs can be a bit hit and miss with activation because the soil residual herbicide is only as good as the, the rain it gets to activate. So I love getting these things out in fall, and then grow a good competitive crop as best you can on these fields and. And make sure you're in there nice and early with your in-crop to get any survivors and, and then back your crop into our compete. So can you give us a perspective on what managing herbicide resistance has cost your farm? Uh, you may have touched on this briefly, but uh, I think it's really worth mentioning. Yeah, for sure. It's probably added quite easily since 2013. Up until now, it's quite easily added about 10 bucks an acre. 10 to $15 an acre to our herbicide program. Um, and we're a 16,000 acre farm, so that starts adding up. But I can honestly say that we, we're really starting to pull back a bit. You know, we, we have invested in a full line of seed terminators as well on our harvesters, so I'm very confident that, you know, we're, we're almost eliminating that ability for our harvesters to spread weeds around our farm. So now we are, instead of doing broad acre sprays, you know, we're really, really focusing in now and just patch management as much as we can. So, you know, we, I really feel that we've gone from being, you know, 10 to 15 bucks an acre more than the average guy maybe on a herbicide program to where I think now that we can start being 10 to 15 bucks less than the average. So, um and I'm confident that we can do this, you know. It, but don't get me wrong, there's there's a fair bit of money's gone into some combine attachments here to stop the spread of these problematic weeds. So in all honesty, our herbicide cost may not be any different, but we've got an integrated approach going at these weeds now and yeah, trying to diversify as much as we can. So what would your advice be to farmers who suspect they have herbicide-resistant weeds? I guess where do we start um, first thing, just find out what sort of resistance levels you have to what chemistries. And even if you have something come back with a 20% level of resistance to, say, a group one or 50% to group two, don't don't not use them. There's still a certain population now that's still susceptible to that chemistry. Uh, so just find out what chemistries you do have still available to your in your toolbox. Um, if... If you're noticing this, say, now, 
and you've still got a harvest coming up here, I would strongly encourage a person to harvest those patches separately and clean down your harvester when you're done. Like, don't go spreading them to the next field. That's just low-hanging fruit. You know, at least just spend 10 minutes quickly. Go and, go and harvest the field. If you just got a few patches, suspect patches, go around them, send one combine in there, go clean them up at the end, and then blow that harvester up. Try not to spread these weeds to the next field. So it starts in the fall here. And then map them out. But then I would, depending on what crop was seeded this year, but I'd really, really look at trying to grow a, a very competitive crop on those fields next year. And make sure you get a soil residual herbicide down and make sure you've got a good a good in-crop option as well. You know, and when I talk about it too, when we had these bad fields that were showing 20 30% uh, resistant level to that group one criminicide. We still did an Avidex prior to canola and we, or trifluorin, and we sprayed Liberty, but we know Liberty's not great on wild oats. We still put the group one in there and it still brings them under control. Like we still had good efficacy out of that. So I think for sure, make sure, got a competitive crop, make sure you get a serviceable herbicide out there and make sure you've got a good viable in crop option coming as well. And it's just that whole notion of layering, right? So just make sure you've got at least two active modes of action coming on those wild oats. Because as an industry, I feel like we do a very good job when it comes to, you know, tank mixing and having multiple modes of action against many of our problem broadleaf weeds. But I just don't quite see it when it comes to grass. You know, we have a lot of multiple modes of action out there, but when you actually look in that drum, Often there's only one mode of action that's going after those wild oats. So that's where it's just critical to at least get that soil residual layer down. So you've got a good shot reducing that population, grow a good competitive crop, really, really target, you know, maybe 20, 30% extra on a, on a plant stand, depending on what crop you're growing, just get a higher, higher competition off the bat because it does, you see it every year, right? Wherever you've got a drill miss, or your blocked head or whatever. It doesn't matter how many chemistries you throw at that spot. It's always weedy. Crop competition is king. You know, you've got to start with a good crop. Josh Lane Farms in West Central Saskatchewan. And on the next episode of AgriPod, Josh will talk about a mechanical harvest weed seed control option to battle the growing number of herbicide-resistant weeds. After the break, Wayne Doby will share with farmers how they can prepare their forage stands for a spring after a very dry and difficult year. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Wayne Doby is the territory rep for Proven Seed, Northern Saskatchewan, for Nutrient Ag Solutions. We've been hearing a lot about the conditions out there and uh, concerns about uh, the heat, the drought, and what impact it's had on uh, grain and oilseed crops and how it's affecting livestock producers. But today we're going to talk specifically about forages. So maybe first of all, Wayne, uh, you're kind of in the central Saskatchewan area. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing as far as conditions in the province and maybe focus a little bit about uh, the red circle we talked about earlier where the biggest problems seem to be as far as uh, crop conditions. 
Yeah, so it, it appears uh, in my travels that the you know the largest hardest hit area seems to be kind of south of the junction of uh, 41 Highway from say somewhere around Waka, and really if you draw a line you know uh, west in a or in a Huapa Horseshoe, sorry, to somewhere around Turtleford, and then south from there you know Unity Wilkie. Uh, really all the way down to the lake um, and then in Regina area it's it's obviously extremely dry we've all seen the the residual soil uh, maps for the province they're poor and uh, you know overall you know when it comes to forages the forage stands both from a hay standpoint and from pastures are suffering greatly and uh, in my 20 years plus experience in dealing with forage uh, this is the worst conditions overall in such a large area I've ever seen. So let's talk about some of the forage seed stands as we head into fall now. Obviously, we can't make it rain. That would be the ideal. But is there anything that producers need to be thinking about this fall that they could possibly help with uh, some of those crops? First off, I think what we really need to do is to assess the age of of either the pasture or the hay. Now, if this is... um native pasture that's never been broke um, land such as that I mean that consideration is different but if this is in your rotation and as a cattle producer you're using it as a rotation either going in or out of forages from time to time if your stand is over you know four plus years old I think a grower is really going to have to assess what it's going to look like if and when we get significant moisture for a recharge and what's left there because the concern is is that the species that we want growing that the cattle and animals want to graze are the ones that have suffered the most so if we see uh, flushes of weeds coming in because there's not competition from the species that we have seeded down or selected for uh, you know that's an issue so if you know really kind of the cut line in my opinion is that four plus year old stand that we really have to weigh in what options do we have and what we can do with it if it's really you know, I hate to use this term, but if it's too far gone and would take too much to come back. So is this uh, then a matter of reseeding and how does the the dry conditions affect that decision? There are opportunities possibly, you know, depending on the weather, what we do with these stands this fall. There is ways to overseed pastures and hay ground. Um, I've got a lot of questions from growers, you know, can I add a legume to an existing grass stand to maybe help, you know, start to recharge it, maybe start to fix some nitrogen, get some roots growing, get some biomass happening again, and get some deep rooting happening. So there are opportunities, you know, uh, a product uh, in a pasture situation like a sicer milk vetch can be dormant seeded. So that would be late, late in the fall where you could broadcast it or knife it in with some sort of seeding tool that can, you know, just basically scratch that product in. And it's a non-bloat legume that you can add to a pasture. And, uh, you know, hopefully by next spring, you get some germination and it starts to help rejuvenate that crop. If uh, fall forage fertility is uh, usually part of your plan, what are the benefits of that if, if these conditions continue or are or maybe not a benefit to, to going ahead with that in the fall? Well, if you've done your stand assessment and you feel like, it, you know, it is, a stand, number one, a stand that's not, you know, very, very old. It's a newer stand and, and it looks like it could rejuvenate and come back. Actually, the fertility is the most important piece. And I like to recommend to growers... Uh, particularly in something like alfalfa, 
if they go out and add a reasonable amount of potash, and obviously without having a soil test in front of me, you can't make the perfect assessment. But if you do rough math on it, you know, 60 to 100 pounds of potash, uh, 30 to 60 pounds of phosphate in the fall will do wonders with your with your uh, crop health going into the winter and without or helping uh, stands not winter kill or spring kill. The the root health is really the factor that we're trying to look after here and by adding some fertility in the fall makes a huge difference going into next spring and I know growers will always see a response from adding a certain amount of fertility uh, in the fall with those. Wayne, as we look at fall and heading into winter, uh, of course, in the northeast, most, most parts of Saskatchewan don't seem to have a problem getting the snow accumulation. How important is snow and uh, temperature and how quickly the temperature drops as we head into winter? Uh, the watch out for, for me would be that if we get a significant amount of warm rain here late in the fall, and the new growth starts to come again and we've got new crowns forming and then we get a really 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 harsh cold winter with not a lot of snow you know we could see a lot of winter kill then in turn if we get good snow cover and everything gets covered fine and then there's a really fast melt in the spring then we could have issues again because then we can run into a situation with spring kill where the pastures and grasses and legumes start to regrow and then we get a cold snap you know late march early april and there again, we do damage to the new growth and to the crowns, and then it spring kills, actually. It's not a winter kill situation. So those are kind of the watchouts. I was just going to say spring is usually when we're happy and feeling optimistic, but now I'm a little concerned. <laughs> but but as spring comes, Wayne, uh, what, what are the key things that producers need to be watching for as uh, we head into that warmer weather of 2022? Well, you know, we're going to have to really, really be patient as forage and cattle producers and, and livestock producers with our pastures and hay ground this spring. Rushing animals out if it looks really, really green and coming really fast may not be in our best interest. I know we're always tempted to move the animals out quick in the spring, get them gone out of our yards, but really getting some good root growth and adding some fertility in the spring if it couldn't be done in the fall um, you know, really getting some biomass added there and some root health back into these existing stands is really going to make a difference how long we can graze that stand past June. So we really got to not be tempted to put our animals out too quick in the spring and really let those those hay grounds and pastures really start to rejuvenate themselves. And in the meantime, we'll just keep our fingers crossed for rain because that will certainly make all the difference, won't it? That is the exact key right now is we need moisture and we need lots of subsoil recharge. Wayne, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add that kind of covered my questions? No, it's just, you know, it's it's really we're going to have to go on, honestly, by a stand-by-stand basis. Please reach out to us, uh, to any of your agronomists. Um, get some people walking your fields and taking a look and doing some assessments once we get some recharge here. And, and let's make decisions based on, you know, a field-by-field field base, not necessarily just uh, painting everything with a broad brush. Wayne Doby is with uh, Nutrien Ag Solutions, talking about forage seed stands and how to prepare them for winter and uh, a successful spring.
This agriculture news and review is for the week of August 9, 2021. Cattle producers found out they would receive some drought assistance from the Agro Recovery Program. Saskatchewan's Agriculture Minister David Merritt announced the province would provide a $100 per head initial payment worth $119 million. Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Chair Arnold Balicki believed much of the money would go towards buying feed where it is available. Balicki said that he has spoken to many producers who are in a very difficult financial situation. He said they're trying to mitigate insolvency by selling land or equipment to come up with enough money to make payments. Farmers on the prairies are facing a dire hay shortage due to the devastating and prolonged drought conditions on the prairies and in Ontario. Canadian Federation of Agriculture has begun work on an initiative to send surplus hay from farmers on the East Coast to those struggling in the West. President Mary Robinson said the Hay West initiative started in 2002 when prairie farmers were facing similar circumstances. Ten years later, the situation was reversed where Western farmers sent hay east to help farms stricken with drought. CFA will be providing more information on the Hay West initiative in the coming days. There are concerns about grain contracts and high administrative fees being charged by some companies. Jim Wickett farms in the Rosetown, Saskatchewan area and is a director with the Western Canadian Wheat Growers. He said there have been issues for growers with deferred delivery contracts. Wicked said from a business point of view, the changes could be harmful for the companies down the road as word spreads quickly among the farming community. Fertilizer Canada will expand the fertilizer use survey to include wheat, flax, sunflowers and corn in Western Canada. President and CEO Karen Prout said the data from the survey provided critical information on the current state of fertilizer management in Canadian crop production and assessing grower awareness and adoption of 4R nutrient stewardship. The survey also examines the adoption of 4R nutrient stewardship related to crop type, region, soil practices and farm size. Food and Beverage Processing Associations are coming together to invest in the first national supply chain platform. Protein Industries Canada is spearheading Food Convergence Innovation Canada, the Food and Beverage Supply Chain Project. Linking food and beverage companies across the country, the initiative aims to make it easier for the nation's food chains to recover from COVID-19 and other emerging issues while diversifying Canada's plant-based food, feed and ingredient offerings. Nutrient said it had record earnings in the second quarter. As a result, it raised its full-year outlook as it expects strong crop prices to increase demand for its services. The fertilizer and crop services giant said it earned $1.1 billion U.S. in the quarter ending June 30th, up from $765 million in the same quarter last year. Ritchie Brothers announced a deal that had been reached to acquire Euro auctions for an estimated $1.08 billion U.S., Ritchie Brothers CEO Anne Fandozzi said the two companies were an ideal fit. Euro Auctions conducts unreserved heavy equipment auctions with on-site and online bidding with over 200 employees in 14 countries. 
Last year, the company conducted 60 auctions, selling close to 90,000 items across its locations, including the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Germany, and the United States. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarland for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarland, and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast, and at farmnewsnow.com.